We have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. This is sermon number three. Uh, And it's a book that speaks about the harsh realities under the sun. Ecclesiastes, as we've already seen, is a very honest book about futility and frustrations of life in this fallen world. Last week, we studied reasons for despair in life. The world seeks to be satisfied in many things, good things, yet without God. Three things the the teacher or the skeptic in this book in this, that's found in this grand experiment is, number one, wisdom doesn't satisfy. Number two, pleasure doesn't satisfy. And number three, death is inevitable. I'm sure you're wondering, why did I even show up this morning? We're talking about death. We're talking about the lack of wisdom. Pleasure in and of itself is meaningless. You see, what we find is that there is one source for meaning and joy in this life, and it's God himself. His grace, his justice. We continue to see two large themes that's woven throughout these texts, the fear of God and the enjoyment of God in the little things of life. There are some harsh realities that we are seeing in this book. First of all, life is a vapor. Last time I came with a little prop and I lit a candle and blew it out and you saw the smoke. That's what the author describes life as. Smoke. Vapor. One moment you see it, you try to grasp it, yet you can't hold on to it, but only for a moment. And then it disappears. Life is a vapor. Secondly, life is full of sorrow. Despair is real. Death is real. And what you actually do on this matters. What you do matters. Chapter 3's overarching theme is the sovereignty of God ruling over time. It's about considering time in view of God, His sovereign rule, His sovereign goodness, and His sovereign justice. When we consider time in view of God, it should lead us to, first of all, fear God. And then to enjoy God. God is the source of wisdom and joy. But it is God who sets time for everything. So this text I find is both comforting, knowing that God is good and he is sovereign. And it's also a challenging text that we should actually live with the awareness of God's justice. It's both reassuring and yet sobering about the harsh realities of life under the sun. It's comforting because it reminds us of what we must, that we must use our time wisely. 
in light of our death, which is where there will actually be final judgment and eternity. God is the one who has made everything beautiful in its time so that we can trust him. Life is a vapor. Sorrow is real. Death is real. Yet what you do matters. You see, time is obviously important because life is what you do with your time. And we're seeing all of these things in this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book that forces us to think about life and death, about time, about eternity. It's about considering time in view of God, in view of God's sovereignty, his sovereign goodness, and his sovereign justice. And so this morning, I want us to see together that God is sovereign over every single season. Look with me in verse 1, will you? For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill. A time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow. A time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This poem is very popular, as many of you know. Dylan uh, graciously sang this song for us that would be familiar to many of you baby boomers in the room. There is a season, turn, 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 And this should be comforting, right? To know that life is full of seasons. Or perhaps, you know, you you might identify a little bit more with Hootie and the Blowfish, who sings about time as well. Time, why you punish me? Perhaps it's this view of time that you might have, right? It communicates Solomon's message because it's a song of time that haunts rather than comforts. The song by Hootie and the Blowfish, it it says terrorizing things about time, like the fact that it crushes your dreams. It, it, It causes tears to fall. It brings all kinds of pain and and sadness into your life, and it's really an enemy rather than a friend. Time doesn't comfort. Time haunts because it is fleeting and, and simply filled with sorrow that cancels out any joy. Like 
watching sand through the hourglass. You watch your life run out, right? So whether this morning you are comforted or haunted with the idea of time, it is, uh, it is certain that we are all trapped by time. The author gives us a poem about experiences in life or situations, circumstances, both some positive, some negative. And we feel the tensions as well, right? As we read the text. Uh, It's revealed to us in phrases like, man, where did the time go? Or, there's just simply not enough hours in the day. Or, I've got to make most of my time. The, the, the older I get, uh, what was said to me when I was young becomes more and more true. Time goes by faster and faster every single year, right? Which is funny because kids, it seems like time gets slower and slower right by the years. So why is there such a tension with time. The poem consists of 14 pairs of opposites covering aspects of life. Notice he says in verse 1, for everything there is a season for every matter under heaven. Again, this book is a reflection of all of life. Life is complex. It's full of good times. It's full of hard times in between times, and the whole manner of lifestyle choices and decisions that often require wisdom that seems to escape us. There is a time for every single one of these things. And we read a full range of human existence from birth to death of the full range of human emotion in this text. Weeping and laughter right? Mourning and dancing, uh, love and, and hate. You see, it's a whole lot of human activity, planting, gathering, killing, healing, breaking down and building up, casting stones and gathering stones, embracing and not embracing, lots of human activity, Seeking, yet losing. Keeping and casting away. Tearing down, sewing together. Speaking, being silent. In verse 2, we see this image of being born and being planted. Two ways of giving life. It's a very wonderful picture. And the fact is that every single one of us in this room have been born We have that in common with ourselves. And there was a time for you to be born. And just as there's a time for you to be born, there's a time for you to die. And we don't know when that is. We do not control time. Verse 3 talks about killing and breaking down. Obviously, these cannot be avoided in life. It's one of the sad realities of living under the sun. 
Verse four talks about how life contains both sorrow and joy, doesn't it? This is a reality for us. It's good to weep and it's good to mourn over death and loss. This is a biblical idea. Jesus himself, the embodiment of God in wisdom, of goodness, he himself wept. And there's a time to laugh, praise God. Aren't you glad for laughter? There's a time to dance. Yes, we're Baptistic, and it's okay to dance. Verse 5, there is a, a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing. There, there's this sad reality that we say goodbye to each other. I, I, I think I can resonate with the Foo Fighters here, right? There, that, that, that it's times like these we learn to live again. It's times like these in life that we learn to give again. It's time like these we learn to love again. You see, we are relational beings to our core. And most of the seasons of our lives are taken up with navigating the different stages of our relationships and the actual effects they have on us. I mean, let's face it. We dance at a wedding. We celebrated a wedding on Friday night. We dance at a wedding. And then we mourn the loss of the one that we danced with. We laugh together. And we mourn. We, we, we weep because what the people that we used to laugh with have done to us. We grow to love some people. We grow to hate others. So the poem is intended to represent in an artistic fashion the entirety of one's life. And the author moves back and forth among desirable and undesirable aspects of life. But you see, he doesn't tell us to actually do anything yet. He's just speaking about the realities of life. He doesn't say, hey, you need to attain the desirable things in the world. You need to avoid the undesirable. There's no mention of that. He's simply reflecting on how life is. And that's life. There's life in a bottle. Life contains all of this. Watch the news. Chances are when you're watching uh, the news, the stories could be set under all of these categories in chapter 3. And the author simply says, there is nothing new under the sun. Life is about seasons. This is one of the reasons why I particularly do not like the word balance. I used to use the word balance all the time. You need to have balance in your life. Now, I know that you can use it in the proper way. But life is less about balance and more about seasons. You don't tell someone during a finals week in school, right, students? You need some balance in your life. You know why? You will fail. You, you will fail. You got to study endlessly to do well. It's a season of study. A season with smaller kiddos. It's a different season, right? Been there. There's a season of car seats. 
booster seats and bedtimes, praise God. And a season to graduate, a season to take a job and take work, and a season to retire, a season to stay, and a season to move away. Part of our frustration of life comes when we try to live in a different season than the one that we're actually in. There's a time to shred our files, right, admin team? There's a time to actually have a garage sale and get rid of stuff. There's a time for us to forever get rid of trying to fit in those pants again. You see, frustration occurs when, and, and, and when joy is absent, when we fail to adjust our expectations when we're in the current season. We should see life as a gift. Ecclesiastes wants us to see that life is a gift, and we are to live in the season that we are in, which means, church, we need to be regularly asking ourselves, God, what time is it? What time is it? Is it a time to embrace? Is it a time to build up or to tear down? Is it a time to speak or a time to be silent? We need the wisdom to know what time it is. Because we make real responsible decisions every single day. But in the reality, we each know that the seasons of life are almost completely out of our hands. There's a time for everything, but we are not arranging them on our own calendars. We're not looking at our Monday calendar and saying, okay, I've got 20 minutes for laughing today. I've got 15 minutes for mourning. I'm going to tear down and I'm going to mend at 5 p.m. today. I mean, we, we don't control that. We, we don't know what to do in the midst of that. But we are to be content in our seasons. And, and so where do we go next? Well, the critic here, the, the teacher, the pastor, the one who is speaking here to us, he's telling us in verses 9 through 11 that God is sovereign over time and eternity. And so we should simply trust him. Trust him. Read with me in verses 9 through 11. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In verses 9 through 10, the critic questions toil or man's busyness in view of the fall. Remember, it wasn't the way that everything was intended to be. Because of sin, we experience flaws, frustration that, ex that, that, that is pictured in verses 1 through 8. Verse 9 should really hit us with some surprise. If we cannot control the circumstances or the situations or emotions in our lives, then really what's the point? What's the point of living? Where is their gain? If my work is meaningless, if my toil is meaningless, where is the gain in my work? 
I want to remind us that the big theme of this book is vanity, vanity. What, what does man gain by all of his toil? Vanity is smoke. It's, it's vapor. We, we can't really get our hands around it. The rhythms of our lives, we find them happening to us often without our awareness of what really is going on in life. I mean, the very fact that life keeps changing really leaves us with no lasting success or a feeling of deep satisfaction. The only thing that is certain is our death. This morning I was talking about this theme with my son Joshua, and a song just popped in my head. I'm like, man, I got to put that in. It's a Brooks and Dunn song, okay, for all you country lovers. I can't neglect you. I know you're here. But Brooks and Dunn, I'm in a hurry to get things done, oh, I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I've really got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. The teacher now gives us this refreshing perspective. He recovers our sense of God in just the ordinary things of life. And here he concludes that what you've gained by your lot or what has been given to you, your deck of cards that you've been dealt, is a gift of God. Your life, your toil, is a gift. Uh, You see, a gift isn't earned. A gift is given. It can be received. When someone gives us a gift, we don't purchase it. We receive it. A gift is not deserved or obligated. It is given out of the kindness and the desire of the giver himself. Now, at times, if you're like me at times of early childhood, we are prone to complain about the gifts that someone gives us, really, if we're honest. As a child, there's nothing like getting socks or underwear for Christmas, How about you? You, All the excitement, you're looking for the new toy, open it up, socks. Which really speaks to our entitlement, our discontentment, our ingratitude. And it causes us to publicly uh, to mock it or, or to attempt to return it privately for something more desirable. Got a gift receipt? But the teacher reorients our ways of thinking, to taste the sweetness of just simple, ordinary joys. We learn to enter into each new day with a conviction about the good gifts the giver gives for us to enjoy. You see, we get a picture of, in Isaiah, the promised Messiah, Jesus, he actually felt this. In Isaiah 49, verse 4, it says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. That's the word hevel. I I, I spent my strength on vanity. Yet surely my right or my vindication is with the Lord. And my recompense or reward is with my God. We see vanity, hevel, vapor, vindication, and reward. And this is what our Messiah felt as he lived life under the sun. 
He felt the frustration of people rejecting him. But he entrusted his work to the Father, knowing that he sees what is going on and and he will actually reward our obedience and our submission to him. I love verse 11 of chapter 3. It says, God will make everything beautiful in its time. You see, we don't understand it all, but we can trust him. He has made everything fitting for its time. You see, life is filled with burden, but it's also filled with beauty. Sometimes we see beauty in this life, but ultimately we are waiting for it to come when Jesus Christ will actually return and make all things right. Verse 11 says, we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You see, it's beyond our scope of investigation. But yet, he is working out all things according to the counsel of his will. Amen? This is what's hard to understand about the mind of God. Consider Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches in wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. So friends, we must therefore trust God and wait on his timing, no matter what season of life we're in. We read in Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament of God's perfect timing in the sending of his son. It was the perfect timing. We see in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Mark chapter 1, we see that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the gospel of John, Jesus himself said, my hour has not yet come. You see, God is in control. He's in control of all things. We we don't understand everything, but we must trust him. God is the king over time. Psalm 90, the psalmist sings, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's king over time. He rules all of our moments and all of our days. Do you know how many hairs you have on your head? Some of you are thinking right now, I've got more than the next guy. I I see who you are. Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30 says this. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. You see, someone knows how many hairs. Some of you are saving God a lot of time. Uh, by not having much hair. But our, our father reigns over this creation with a fatherly sovereignty. He cares about how many hairs we have on our head. He knows us, and yet he loves us. What, what does this mean for us? You see, most of us want to control our own agendas rather than simply waiting on God's timing. It might be a job. It might be a relationship. It might be material possessions or children. But instead, we must say with the psalmist David, 
I trust in you, oh my Lord. My, my times are in your hand, right? The first three years of our marriage, Carl and I tried having children. Everyone at seminary where we were studying were birthing kids. It was like, this person's pregnant and that person's pregnant. Everyone's asking, when are you going to have kids? And we were wanting to have children for ourselves. It was a very emotional time for us as a young married couple. But what God was working on at the time, little did we know, was actually shaping us both to really trust him and wait upon him in his timing. Our lives are unpredictable, but on this we simply rest that God is trustworthy. We, we rest in his sovereign power, in his sovereign providence. You, you never know what the Lord may do in your life. I went on a mission trip when I was a teenager. Little did I know that I would discover a calling on my life to God himself. Little did I know that I would discover my future bride when I met my wife. I didn't know what season I was in. I wasn't expecting God to do certain things. We often think that God's timing is off rather than just simply trusting in him. I look at the pictures of my boys, and I remember when they were six years younger when we first moved into the valley. And I can't even remember that they actually looked like that. I can't remember that I looked the way that I did. The photographs have frozen a moment in time. And, and with those pictures' help, I'm immediately transported back to the day at the beach. I'm immediately transported back to being in the park with them or around the Christmas tree. But then it's like vapor. The moment is gone, and I can't get it back. But the critic here in chapter 3 is saying that God is not bound by time in the way that I am bound by time. And while I might feel sentimental and nostalgic for the happy family snap of a picture, they are not really moments in time that I need to get back. Yet there are things in life that seem perplexing, right? Circumstances and situations that I perhaps found myself in without answers that only God can one day dial back and bring to the present and show how all the things were made beautiful. Friends, let us embrace the beauty of God's sovereignty. The God who works out all things together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is comforting, isn't it? I mean, God sees the end from the beginning. We can live our lives knowing that our lives are strangely a part of this bigger picture, this bigger story which we cannot see. But our good and wise God sees the whole thing is beautiful. We want to access it, which is why the author says he has put eternity into our hearts so we can trust him. I love this, he has put eternity into our hearts. To my unbelieving friends who are here, 
We love you and are so glad that you chose to be here this morning. You should know this about yourself. The Bible knows a lot about you, and perhaps even more than you know about yourself. You see, you are hardwired for eternity. That's why you long for it. That's why you desire it. You desire and long for something more in this life. You can try to suppress it. You can try to ignore it. Or perhaps you can explain it away. But you cannot remove it. You are made to know God. You are made to fear God. And, and to enjoy him. That's what you were made for. You, 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 can, you can try to uh, suppress it, but eternity is in your hearts. And Jesus is the only one who can fill that longing in your heart. You will die. And he loves you so much that he is today even giving you another chance to repent and believe. Repentance is simply turning away from your old paths. It's turning away from old ways of thinking and turning to Christ. It's the only way to have a contented life. It's the only way to be truly satisfied. Now, thinking about living a contented life, here is how we see it proclaimed. In verses 12 and 13, God is sovereign and good, and so we should enjoy him. We, we, we don't even have to just fear him, but we can also enjoy him. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You might ask, be joyful. Why? Why should we be joyful? Because God is sovereign and good. That's why we should be joyful. Do good? He's saying here that we should serve God and his people, and we are to do it joyfully. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The teacher here in Ecclesiastes 3 says there is nothing better than that everyone should be eating and drinking and taking pleasure in our toil. This is God's good gift to man. This is from the hand of a sovereign God. This speaks of God's grace. He's saying here to enjoy the good gifts of food and drink with gratitude. Enjoy a father who loves you. Even in the midst of the world crashing down around you, you can still throw out a picnic blanket and enjoy life under the sun. Eat your sandwich with joy. Sip your coffee or tea with happiness. Get in that kitchen with a great recipe and, and cook it for God's glory and share it with a few friends. Do your joy, do your job itself with delight. Love God and love your neighbor and do it with all your might and for the glory of God. Finally, we see in verses 14 through 15, God is sovereign, he's eternal, so we should fear him. We should enjoy him, but we should fear him. He says in verse 14 through 15, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Just think about that. 
Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people, what? Fear before him. That that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. You see, the teacher perceives in verse 14 that God is involved and that what God does, it endures forever. God's work is in the world, in the, God's work in the world is enduring. It's lasting. It's complete. It's just. It's perfect. His nature and his character is unchanging. God never changes. Seasons come and go. God never changes. In verse 15a, he says, nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. We cannot fundamentally alter the nature of the world. We are not in control of our arrival coming into the world. We are not in control of our departure from the world. And in the end, God will be the only one who balances the scales of justice. He is the only one who will have the last word on injustice. Ultimately, he will redeem the time. And in the final judgment, he will take into account every single action. We should find comfort in this. We should also fear him because of this. We should fear him. He is just. He is eternal. He is sovereign. So friends, church, let's fear him and be ready to stand before him. There are different motives given throughout the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for fearing him. But here, the author just simply says, we fear him because we are not God. God is God. And we are not. What God does lasts forever. And he doesn't just simply answer all of our questions. We can't just simply pull a little string and make God dance for us. He is God and we are to revere him. God makes everything beautiful in his time. We can't comprehend everything, but he is God. The recognition that God is God should lead us to enjoy his gifts and to fear him. You see, satisfaction comes when you know that you're actually time-bound. You're a time-bound creature, and God is the eternal creator. Satisfaction then lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my creaturely existence. And I accept the seasons of my life as coming from his good and wise hands. Church, Ecclesiastes tells us to learn now, to learn today, that there really is a time for everything. The season or seasons I am in will not always be the seasons of my entire life. Knowing this can at least help me or to prepare me for the chapters of my life that God has yet to write. It does not mean building up or tearing down will be any easier than it is, but it might help me to be taken less by surprise. 
Finally, this passage here is a picture of how God himself graciously relates to each of us. He has centered himself in our lives, not just as a redeemer, some far-off rescuer, but also as the one who created us, the one who governs all of our seasons. He is the one who recovers our humanity, and he delivers us from acting as if we or others are God. He is the one who humbled himself. He humbled himself humanly on our behalf in the person of Jesus. He has not required that we know everything up front. So rest assured, it's okay that you don't know everything about God. He hasn't required that of you. Or that we have all the answers. Or that we cannot question. Or that we can't make mistakes. Or find areas in which we need to grow. You see, God is a hospitable God. He wants us. He welcomes us. Broken, needy, stumbling around like little children. He has been hospitable toward us in all of our aches, in all of our questions, in all of our doubting, in our sins, in our laments, in our frustrations, in all of our wrestlings with the way that things are. He has given us room, friends. He has given us room. And he has given us lots of patience to bring us from where we are to himself. Where are you today? Are you trusting in a sovereign and good God? Are you fearing him? Are you enjoying him? 